Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Peter Ambler, executive director and co-founder of Giffords, one of the nation's premier organizations leading the fight to prevent gun violence. I wanted to talk to Peter in light of passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was signed into law on June 25th. Among other things, the new law requires enhanced background checks for people under 21 to buy long guns, authorizes $750 million in grants to encourage states to implement red flag laws, addresses the boyfriend loophole, which will help ensure that convicted abusers who victimized people they were dating but not married to cannot possess firearms. It establishes new federal statutes and penalties for firearms trafficking and straw purchases, and it includes funding for expanded access to mental health through telehealth, for school safety and training, and for community-based mental health programs. Before co-founding Giffords with Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and her husband, now Senator Mark Kelly, in 2013, Peter worked on Capitol Hill for the Congresswoman. Before that, he worked as a legislative staffer for three other members of the House— He also worked on campaigns for the House, the Senate, and eventually for President Obama's campaign in 2008. I also want to note some important background. As I'm sure everyone listening already knows, the organization Giffords was born out of the tragic shooting in Tucson that occurred in January 2011. On that day, Congresswoman Giffords was holding what was called a Congress on Your Corner, something she did often throughout her time in Congress, where she would set up a table or two in front of a grocery store and meet with constituents and talk with them about what was on their mind. And she would also take in constituent service requests. And with her, of course, were several staffers who would follow up the congresswoman's conversations, get more details from the constituents about what they needed, and follow through on each request. Tragically, a gunman arrived with the express intent to kill the congresswoman that day. He shot her point-blank and opened fire on the people gathered. Somehow, the congresswoman survived her gunshot wounds, as did several other people, including one of her staffers, Ron Barber, who went on to serve in Congress, representing that district for two terms. Six people did not survive. Among those killed were a nine-year-old girl, a district court judge, a homemaker, a retired secretary, a retired construction worker, and a staffer. That staffer's name was Gabe Zimmerman. He was 30 years old, and he led the congresswoman's community outreach. Gabe was the first congressional staffer killed in the line of duty, and today, a room in the Capitol complex is named after him. Though it's a small gesture, I want to dedicate this episode to him, his memory, and his service to the country and his community— Peter and I recorded this episode on Friday, July 1st. Peter Ambler, welcome to Staffer. I'm thrilled to be here. I got to be honest, um, I I get the email from GSG every week, and I've just been waiting waiting for my time in the sun. (laughs) I am thrilled to have you as well. Um, You know, I normally start by asking people about where they grew up and how they got into politics, and I do want to ask you how you found yourself in this in this field, um, but I first want to talk uh, about uh, the work your organization does and the really historic and significant accomplishment you had um, just 
a, a week ago. Um, it was the first and most significant gun safety legislation in nearly 30 years. And just today, uh, the White House announced that Gabby Giffords is going to be given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You founded Giffords with Gabby and her husband, Mark Kelly, um, now coming up on 10 years ago. Can you talk to me about her um, as a leader and what you've learned from her? Uh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, everything we do at Giffords, I think, and more broadly in the movement, is a reflection of her. Um, I actually joined her office only five days before she was shot. So I'm somebody who is unique in that I'm very close to her, but um, know her almost exclusively um, after she was shot and with her aphasia and the paralysis that she has on the right side of her body. And something that I think we all see in Gabby, but that I see each and every day is the sheer determination and relentlessness that she brings not only um, to her continued recovery, but the gun violence prevention movement and her work at Giffords as well. Um, and I think there is this, you know, really elegant parallel, this grand metaphor between her approach to her own recovery and the gun violence prevention work. Um, you know, she likes to, you know, point out that, you know, she didn't go from, you know, having a, you know, bullet in her brain on the pavement of a parking lot in Tucson to, you know, leading a movement, getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom today um, through some, you know, amazing medical breakthrough, um, not through some, you know, particularly awesome day in speech therapy, right? It's just the sheer accumulation of hard work and effort and having a great team around you doctors and medical professionals and therapists and coaches and everything. And the same is true in the gun violence prevention space. Um, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen quickly. And when we launched Giffords, we, um, it was like a startup, you know, we, and we did it because it didn't exist, right? This, all this amazing activism and advocacy that you see in this space from Giffords and so many other organizations and advocates fundamentally did not exist then. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Jim, but during all my years as a staffer on the Hill, not once was I ever lobbied or contacted by a representative of a gun safety organization while the NRA was in and out of the your, your office, you know, all the time. Um, my working campaigns, like I never had the assistance of a gun safety organization. And we had to build that and you can't build it overnight. Um, but, you know, step by step, we, you know, developed that muscle, we built that infrastructure, we built the movement. And today, like, I'm really proud to say that we out lobby the NRA in Congress, we outspend them collectively in elections. And um, that's a big part of why we had the victory we, we had in Congress. It's absolutely incredible what you've built. And, and I think Describing it as a movement is right. There's a lot of in infrastructure that goes with that. Um, but there are masses of people of all ages now that are heavily engaged and invested over the long term to change the laws so that we have a safer America. There are and there have been just in the last, uh, you know, nine, 10 years, times when we came close that ultimately did end in disappointment. And that's what makes, you know, this recent accomplishment so meaningful. 
how do you, since, since Giffords is an organization that does rely on people all over the country who don't have the access of seeing some of that, you know, determination, those qualities that you, you know, described for, that are unique to Gabby, you know, if they're not proximate enough to see them and feel them, how as an organization do you keep people from, you know, getting so depressed when you come close but don't succeed to keep going? I mean, that's the million dollar question right there. Um, I like to say that, you know, the gun lobby's sort of chief economic product is fear, right? That's how they sell guns. They make people scared and they tell you, you need a gun to protect yourself, even though it's not true. Um, but their chief political product is hopelessness. They want you, us to think that gun violence is just, you know, part of the experience of being an American, that it's naturally occurring like a earthquake or a hurricane or wildfire, um, that we got to blame, you know, deeply seated existential problems, you know, mental health crises, poverty, income inequality, Facebook, violent video games, you know, something, you know, in intangibly wrong with our culture. When we know that's not true, right? We're running this natural experiment in this country. Um, what happens when you combine widespread civilian gun ownership with weak to non-existent gun laws? And the result is pretty clear. We've got 25 times the rate of gun violence than our peer nations have. We're on, you know, a par with Yemen when it comes to, you know, Americans being threatened um, by, you know, guns in terms of their safety. Um, so, you know, the, the big thing we need to do to, you know, make sure people have hope is to make progress where it's available to us um, and to prove the effectiveness of these laws. So I think one thing that's really been helpful over the years, and I remember almost 10 years ago, uh, Manchin Toomey being filibustered, and we can talk about like the differences between then and now, but um, the day Manchin Toomey was being filibustered, I was in Dover, Delaware, in the state capital, passing universal background checks. And in the, over the next decade, we passed nearly 500 pieces of legislation at the state level. And we invested in a research team to, you know, show exactly um, how those, the passages of, passage of those laws, like makes our kids and communities safer. And we invested in, you know, we broke a 25-year NRA blockade of funding CDC to conduct uh, gun violence prevention research. And now the academics are doing that research and they're showing the effectiveness of this gun law. So, and then I think that all just ladders up to, you know, what we achieved here over the, uh, in the, in the, in the past couple of weeks, um, which is on the one month anniversary of the tragic shooting in Uvalde, President Biden signing um, into law, a, you know, narrow in scope, impactful piece of legislation where we're able to show like not only um, our gun law is effective, but we finally have the political strength um, that we have a movement that's able to get this thing done, to get 15 Republican senators um, to cross the NRA. The NRA, the gun industry opposed this legislation, and uh, we beat them at their own game and passed a pretty good bill into law. You know, what you said is so important about the fact that there are victories that can happen and do happen around the country due to hard work at every level, but that don't get nationwide attention, right? And But they're essential for showing progress, for giving hope, 
and then showing results, right? And mm-hmm. that is what makes these moments, you know, you use the phrase ladder up. You eventually have to build those moments to get to action in, uh, in Congress. So let me, let me ask you, where were you? If you were in Dover, you know, uh, when, when that law, uh, state law was being passed, where were you this time when the Senate uh, in particular passed uh, this bill? I was in Chicago. Um, I was in Chicago raising money. Um, I, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, building this movement. Um, this movement is made of people. It's fueled by uh, a lot of dollars that, you know, come in small chunks and big chunks. Um, I was actually, I'm just giving an opportunity to plug an amazing documentary coming out. I was at a screening of the new, new documentary coming out July 13th, Gabby Giffords won't back down by the directors of RBG, uh, be July 13th, 300 screens across the country. Um, so we were uh, showing that film to some of our uh, top supporters across the country in, uh, in rather some of our top supporters in Chicago. Um, and um, excited for everybody else to see it. Um, but that's where I was. I, I very fittingly, I was um, at the movies, but watching the story of one of the people responsible for making this bill happen. Oh, wow. Uh, so there's no rest, like even on a day of where you hope you might be able to reflect uh, on an accomplishment or you know, pause to consider what you've done. Um, you're still out there, and I'm so glad to hear of the documentary. I didn't know. I hadn't heard about it. Uh, and when it comes up, um, I know I will want to watch it and and push it through these Stafford channels. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, you said it is a it is a very good bill, I think was the phrase you used, which it is. Obviously, it's not everything that gun safety um, and gun prevention, gun violence prevention uh, advocates want. So how, as a leader of a movement, do you, you know, build the 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 energy and the pressure to make such a thing possible while also um, making sure that people don't flag when they have to, you know, we have to accept something that's not everything we want. Yeah. I mean, if going back to Gabby Giffords and her experience and her recovery, if she like in the weeks, months and years after her shooting, um, only settled for a complete recovery, she wouldn't be where she is today. Uh, and that's a lesson that we hold dear at Giffords and in the gun violence prevention movement. We must operate from a place of relentless incrementalism um, because that's that's how change happens in this country. Um, even when you sometimes see the you know tip of the iceberg, um, like for example, the passage of a bill like the Affordable Care Act, those victories come along you know so infrequently. Um, and we certainly in, in this movement have have learned that you know um, you need to um, we need to take our wins one at a time. That's how it's worked at the state level, um, and I think that's how ultimately it's going to work in Congress. Um, because this is this is a significant bipartisan victory in Congress, and it's very notable because it is going to have real impact. And we can talk about some of the provisions and how they're going to help keep you know communities safer and save lives. Um, but we've also you know even you know, when Donald Trump was president, we passed a bill called the Fix and Ix Act, which helped strengthen the um, instant criminal background check system. We, um, like I said earlier, overcome, we, we overcame a 25-year uh, NRA blockade of uh, funding 
for gun violence prevention research at CDC and NIH. And we've appropriated now nearly $100 million in a three-year period with more to come. So, you know, we have had these incremental victories in the past. This is a little bit more high profile. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, the key thing here is to sort of break the seal. We're showing, you know, Congress, we're showing our politics, we're demonstrating to the American people that progress is possible, that Democrats and Republicans can come together around important and impactful things. Um, and I think that's not only important uh, for the policies that we're advancing, but to show that progress is possible, right? It's like, um, yeah, we're like, we're all sort of hopefully joining hands, jumping into the pool. Um, and uh, we're going to see that it's warm and it's going to allow us to you know, keep on going in the future. You know, um, your your personal background, before you began working for Congresswoman Giffords, you'd been a legislative aide for several members of Congress. You um, um, were a legislative director for Congressman Harry Teague of New Mexico and as a legislative aide for Peter Welch of Vermont and Silver Reyes of Texas. You know, hearing you talk about the process of the of the of the various other successes that you had um, along the way, building up to this, how does you know being a former congressional legislative staffer inform how you strategize um, at Giffords? That's a that's a good question, and I think you know that that background is certainly an asset. Um, you know, just sort of you know, what you really develop working in Congress um, for all those years is just sort of like an instinct and a feel for how the process works, um, for how you can move the ball forward, both like tangibly, intangibly, like where the pressure points are, um, what sort of narratives you have to shift. And I, I don't think there's any way you can really replace like, you know, being 23, 24 years old, you know, sitting in the Rayburn House office building till one in the morning watching C-SPAN, like listening to older, more experienced people sort of chatter until you sort of get to do it yourself. Um, and we, one thing we've done, I think at Giffords, uh, relative to, you know, what maybe we, a path we could have taken and what sort of other people did is we always over-invested in our uh, federal work, right? Even when the odds were long, um, even when we you know, fundamentally knew we weren't going to sort of have the opportunity to, you know, pass bipartisan legislation like we just did this month um, or last month, um, we we kept plugging away, right? We um, put in place a, a team to, you know, divide up, you know, members of Congress and the House and the Senate. We contacted them consistently. We uh, helped the, you know, committees of jurisdiction develop, you know, more expertise, um, we made sure they'd access not just to sort of, you know, the advocates, but also the real policy experts. We, you know, you know, actually, you know, developed legislation. We put our heads down. And even when most of the country wasn't paying attention, we, you know, got Democrats and Republicans to co-sponsor bills, just like the, 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 the basic sort of like ground level infrastructure building that makes these bigger victories possible, like even years later. I think the political piece is very important, right? Um, you know, one of the big things that we did at Giffords is we changed the political calculus on this issue. As you know really, really well, Jim, um, you know, um, 10 years ago, 
Um, people still thought of this as a third rail issue, right? Um, something that was you know politically dangerous. And you know, the NRA had done a very, very good job of you know, perpetuating this myth that like if anybody you know steps out of line and um, you know starts talking about you know preventing gun violence, that this sort of like mythical like independent pro-gun voter is going to sort of come punish you. And you know there are a lot of like you know democratic political consultants that built their second houses, you know dispensing dated advice. Um, and that was like a tanker that we had to turn around. Um, so not only were we invested in building infrastructure and developing policy and changing minds, like in the halls of Congress, in our political operation, you know, we ran a really effective candidate services operation, and we still do. Like it's a little bit less important now, but we used to have to, you know, sit down with consultants and campaign managers and candidates and teach them how to ask questions on a poll, how to craft an effective message on this issue. Um, on a mail piece, how to talk about it in a radio, how to answer questions at a at a town hall or in a debate. Um, so there's 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 a lot of sort of you know basics that we ultimately had to had to had to do, and it took a long time, but you know I think it's added up to a lot, and there's a lot more to do. That is such fascinating work, and it really does speak to how you had to address the fear and hopelessness put out from the other side in a lot of different ways at a lot of different levels. I've mentioned, you know, I've sort of been thinking of the, the you know, the grassroots activist, right, who, who wants gun safety um, legislation. But to your point, there's a lot of engagement and education and outreach that has to happen to the political class uh, mm-hmm. in order to be successful. And you've, you've been in campaigns. Um, you know, prior to be coming to, to Capitol Hill, you worked on campaigns for uh, Congressman Brad Carson when he was running for Senate <laughs> and for Bruce Braley uh, yep. when he uh, was elected to the House in 06. Now, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the 2008 Obama campaign was, you know, rightly got so much credit for how it ran a new and modern campaign using social media. But now looking back on that, that was such a long time ago. Those tools and tactics, you know, brilliant then are now, you know, the, the brilliant tactics now are different. I'm just curious, um, from your perspective, what have you seen, you know, change with campaigns that are, you know, that you're looking to adapt and apply at Giffords to make you know, the mission more successful? I mean, so many things have changed. I think, you know, just the sheer amount of money that goes into campaigns now is sort of definitely like adjusted our tactics and strategy um, over the years, right? When you, you you look at some of these like, you know, frontline, bigger ticket Senate races, you know, you're hun- hundreds of millions of dollars, nearly a billion dollars are like going into some of these uh, Senate races, right? You have Senate candidates raising a hundred million dollars just on the hard side. Um, in, in, in one cycle. Um, so then, you know, you, you look at a Giffords and I think you, you, we have to ask ourselves, like, how are we going to run like a, like a punchy political program with like a, you know, <laughs> what I would think of as a robust, but relatively modest budget. Um, and that just means, uh, what you have to do is take whatever, you know, budget you're going to have. And I think, you know, we'll have like a $10 million political budget you know, this cycle. And I'm really proud to have an organization that's going to have a $10 million political budget. Um, 
in a you know really sort of key election year. Um, but you know, like we're not going to have a dispositive impact on you know the midterms with a ten million dollar political budget, right? Um, so we have to find like novel and creative ways to like use that money to one, you know, help help move votes, and two, like you know, shift narrative, right? Um, so our ads need to be you know, effective and splashy, right? We're never going to be like a Senate majority pack or a House majority pack. We're not going to like provide air cover for like a candidate, right? But we need to find a way to create a contrast in a race um, where we know it's going to be effective and important uh, for a particular candidate, right? Um, so we're, you know, religious about following the polling, um, but then we need to sort of also have like the sort of the art, right? And we need to create a sense of like grassroots energy. Um, we, you know, want to have a lot of earned media to, you know, obviously accompany our paid media. Um, and we want to create a larger narrative that's going to live beyond whatever sort of paid impact we're going to have. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I think, ultimately how I think things have changed for us is just the impact of money in politics and how we can, you know, use the resources that we do have to punch above our weight. You, you, you speak so eloquently and, and with such clarity on the combination and sort of the, the pathway from politics to, you know, infrastructure building and messaging to accomplishment, like meaningful accomplishment that is substantive. You've been in, in this business for a while now. Um, did you, you know, growing up, did you know you wanted to go into politics and government? Uh, how did you find your way into this business? That's a good question. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. My parents, you know, were sort of more lefty liberal academic types. Um, and, you know, I was sort of, I think, more internationally oriented growing up. Like I wanted to gallivant around the world. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be an aid worker. Um but um, I was certainly politically aware. And I remember in 92, you know, we had a big political split in the Ambler House. Uh, my, my parents were, you know, uh, Paul Songus supporters, but I was I was a big Bill Clinton person early on. <laughs> big um, divide. So I, big divide. So, yeah, I, so, I mean, obviously, you know, I, sh- I, I think I even mentioned that in an interview at some point in politics. I'm like, I, I, I called the right shot when I was like a little kid. <laughs> yeah, I sort of, you know, grew up, went to college in D.C., went to Georgetown. Um, and I, you know, up until 2003, when I was graduating, you know, I still imagined myself, um, you know, having a more of an international career, um, maybe as like a foreign journalist or something like that, foreign correspondent. But then what happened is the Iraq War, right? As I was graduating from college, you know, toward the end of my last semester, uh, George W. Bush, um, you know, invaded Iraq. And obviously it's a sort of foreign policy decision that I disagreed with and went on to have like, you know, calamitous consequences for the world. But, um, that was my, like, that was my sort of real, like first political lens. Right. Um, and I think about it now because, you know, I was 22 starting to think about politics, um, and getting involved in politics because of the Iraq war. And that's why I did go to Oklahoma and like, work for uh, Brad Carson. It's it very funny. I was like, oh yeah, like instead of going abroad, I should, you know, um, get in, I'll work for the Kerry campaign, maybe do some like strategy, write some speeches. So naturally I end up as a junior field organizer, <laughs> like 
in the rural in rural Grady County outside of like Lawton, Oklahoma, right? <laughs> Which is where I absolutely where I belonged. Um, but the 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 thing that got me there was the Iraq War, right? Um, and today, what's getting young people involved in politics is oftentimes gun violence, right? Um, because they're going through these like lockdown drills and they're, you know, seeing their, you know, friends and classmates either shot or traumatized um, by gun violence or the threat of gun violence. Um, and, you know, I've got a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old and our five-year-old, like, and she actually mentioned it to us, to me and my wife, we were um, driving her to, to her first summer camp the week after she finished school and her last day of school um, was like the very same day that the, that, you know, the kids in Uvalde had their last day of school when the shooting happened. And, um, and we didn't talk to her about the Uvalde shooting. I don't, I'm not going to talk to a five-year-old about that, but she started um, talking about um, just a propos of like absolutely nothing. Some of, you know, the, how they, would do these drills and have to hide in a closet and lock the doors. And, um, and, you know, that's why, you know, young people are getting involved in politics today. Um, that's why you have the March for our lives. It's like, they're literally marching for their own lives. They feel like their safety is threatened. Like the adult class, the, our politics have just failed them. And we have, um, and, um, that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm optimistic for the future on this issue is because like not only then can we use this issue to you know persuade their parents right as a persuasion tool in, in an election we also use it to activate you know more sort of democratic base voters young people it's very effective as, as an issue but then there's also this sort of like demographics it's destiny kind of like argument you can make right like we know a lot of these you know 18 19 year olds aren't you know, we, we're getting a lot more of them to vote than they otherwise might, but you know they're ultimately going to age into more consistent voting patterns, and they're going to hold this core experience, right, of um, you know lockdown. It's a lockdown generation, and I think like we're going to see that move our politics in a consistent way for like generations to come. You know, another uh, reason for optimism is this new law um, that has a number of, of very important provisions in it, um, which I, I sort of ticked off at the, at the uh, intro to the show. But, Peter, what in that law are, are you most, um, you know, glad to have in there? Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps it was really hard to, to make sure it was in there. Yeah, there's not one sort of, like, thing that's going to have, like, such a bigger impact than any other thing. I think the success of this legislation is that there are several really impactful pieces. And in keeping with our conversation about effectiveness, I'll sort of tick through these and give the the listeners, you know, reasons to be hopeful um, uh, and confident that like this bill that we fought for is actually going to make us safer, right? So Legislation provides $750 million um, to support um, extreme risk protection laws or red flag laws. And as we pass those laws more places, we've now have them in 19 states in the District of Columbia. That's all just happened since 2016. And that's part of the work that we've done at the state level. Um, There's research that shows that for every 10 
extreme risk orders issued, one life is saved. So that's a pretty big bang for your buck wow. when you're talking about public policy. And I think this funding and this validation that's coming on a bipartisan basis is going to help us pass that more places and then implement them more effectively. Um, so that's really exciting. We are closing or narrowing the what's called the boyfriend or um, uh, dating partner loophole. Currently under federal law, if you have a misdemeanor domestic violence prohibition, you're prohibited from owning a gun, as you should be. The nexus between gun violence and uh, domestic violence is really lethal, right? 500, um, you have 500% more greater likelihood of um, an abused individual dying in a situation like that, an abusive relationship, if their abuser has access to a firearm. Mm. And in the states where we have already closed this dating partner loophole, you see 16% fewer intimate partner gun homicides. So wow. we're, we're going to be saving lives there. Um, we're spending $250 million on uh, community violence intervention programs. Giffords, we have a big violence intervention program that supports the growth of these um, models to intervene in cycles of gun violence that can be really, really effective if implemented according to the public health models and on an evidentiary basis. Um, in my community where I live here in Oakland, California, we saw a successful program, um, you know, help uh, cut a homicide rate here in half in a three-year period. Um, we're also addressing gun trafficking. Um, uh, there's never been a federal gun trafficking law, which is insane. People think wow. there, that there, there has been, but there, there, there never has been. Um, so you look at these sort of, you know, big cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, like this is going to give, you know, prosecutors, and law enforcement, greater, more tools to go after, you know, the iron pipeline on the East coast and, um, help make sure there are fewer guns in our, uh, communities. Um, and then we're also, you know, you saw, um, in both Buffalo and Uvalde, 18 year olds, um, buying assault rifles and then very quickly using those assault rifles um, to commit these horrific acts. And we know that 18, 19, 20 year olds, young people, they're um, more susceptible to committing acts of violence. Their brains are literally built differently. Um, their frontal cortexes are not fully formed. And the idea that we would um, not have, you know, more background checks um, and more sort of regulation on people of that age, you know, buying guns is frankly insane. So, you know, they came together bipartisan basis. They traded around a lot of ideas, you know, they ended up with this enhanced background check for uh, folks under 21 buying long guns, which is going to create a pause. Um, and then also more opportunities for, for oversight to make sure that people who, you know, shouldn't be buying those guns aren't. Uh, Peter, it's incredible. The, not just the, the breadth of what is now going to be implemented, but as you said, what we already know the results can be. Um, I mean, you, your work and that of so many others is truly saving lives. Um, it's just incredible. When, when you were mentioning, you know, these are bipartisan victories. You got 15 votes in the Senate, I think 14 in the House, um, it can't be done without bipartisan support. A question I like uh, to ask my guests is uh, across the aisle, is there someone on the other side uh, in the other party who you've worked with, who you've observed that you really admire? 
Um, you know, I, I mean, maybe this is like a bit of a cheat code here, um, but um, especially today, because along with Gabby, he's also being honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But, you know, John McCain um, was somebody who just, as you know, um, ha had a lot of decency, um, but just also like practicality, right? I remember in 2013 uh, meeting with him about, you know, gun safety and, you know, he, he just implicitly understood um, like why it was so important uh, for Democrats, and Republicans to come to, to come together on this uh, issue. And I think it's going to be really special for Gabby and Cindy McCain to be able to, you know, um, stand together at the White House and um, sort of represent for the country, um, you know, the, the, the best of our politics. And that that can come from the Democratic side and also the Republican side. Um, and, you know, it's obviously even cooler that they're both from Arizona. Okay. I also want to ask you about another uh, politician who is important to you. And you've already mentioned her. Uh, that is your wife, Bucky Wicks, <laughs> who serves in the California State Assembly. She represents the 15th District, which covers Oakland, Richmond, and the city of Berkeley. I had the, the opportunity to work with Buffy when she was in the White House during the Obama administration. She was in the Office of, of Public Engagement. I was in Legislative Affairs. Um, there aren't many people who get to see kind of behind the curtain of, you know, a public servant's life. So for staffers who obviously work very closely with their bosses, but also, you know, don't see them in the private side of their lives, what, you know, what have you learned about public service and what have you observed that, you know, staffers on the Hill or anywhere in the country today could benefit from knowing? Um, yeah, I, th I think it, it takes courage to put your name out there, right? Um, it wasn't easy on Buffy or on her family for her to, you know, put, raise her hand and run for office. Um, you know, you, you, you think it's going to be easy. You think it's going to be glamorous. Um, and, but she literally like, you know, after Trump was elected and, um, you know, she went to Chicago to do that Obama event, right? And he told everybody to pick up a clipboard. And <laughs> she took that instruction very literally um, and started gathering signatures to put her name on the ballot for an open assembly seat here in uh, in Oakland. Um, and it's a very progressive area, um, but that's difficult, right? Like, um, and sometimes the barbs coming from the left are as you know extreme and dishonest as the barbs coming from the right. So we went through that as a family, right? Um, yeah. But you know, then you know she gets into office, and um, you know the <laughs> the trucker convoy literally came to our house, like our house, like wow. a, a, a couple months ago. The one that was in D.C. went to Sacramento. You know, they they were lying about some of her bills. She's worked a lot on you know vaccine legislation and choice legislation. Um, and, um, you know, one, one, one Friday, we're sort of both working from home. Thank, thank God the girls were, were gone. And then, you know, there are like 20 big rigs, like clogging our like residential, the streets of our residential neighborhood. And, you know, these fools with, um, you know, bullhorns, you know, yelling at her and our neighbors about how she's committed crimes against humanity. And, you know, not to sort of bring it back to my job, but something we think a lot about um, 
now is the fact that, you know, we've thought about, you know, guns as sort of a public safety and a public health threat for a long time. But clearly with January 6th and um, how the far right and the gun rights movement have become so intertwined, there's, it's also, you know, guns are also a threat to our democracy. And increasingly, um, you know, you're, you see, I think, public officials, um, you know, feeling, being cowed, not necessarily by the political threat of the gun lobby, but by concern for the safety of themselves and their, and their families, right? Um, and that's just a whole other thing for any elected official to consider. Like, why would you, like, raise your hand to do something you know, important, but potentially controversial, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you think, you know, open carry activists are going to show up on your front lawn, or you're going to have, you know, a group of truckers um, clogging your neighborhoods and getting real confrontational with you, and maybe they're armed. Um, I think that's potentially really chilling. And ultimately, I think um, could interfere in a very direct way in um, our, the exercise of our democracy. Think, think um, you know, three percenter types, you know, showing up with assault rifles at polling locations or vote counting locations, stopping people from voting or stopping votes from being counted. That's in our future. You're absolutely right. Um, it takes immense courage uh, to run and to serve publicly today. And, and you make this really strong point. A firearm doesn't need to be dangerous to our, doesn't need to be fired to be dangerous to our democracy. There is this intimidation effect that has a chilling, um, you know, impact on, on discourse. Um, well, and you Peter, know, one thing I like, to, one thing I like to point out about, you know, the way that this has changed, that this issue has changed, right. You know, a generation ago, um, the face of the gun lobby was, uh, Charlton Heston, right. Uh, yep. you know, out of, out of my cold dead hands, this famous, very accessible face from, you know, from Hollywood, from, you know, from the, the movie screens, um, you know, today it's somebody who murdered people at a protest, right? Um, it's a uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. I think, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse and people like him are the new face of the gun rights movement. Um, and that's like, and that's, and it's very dangerous for our country, but you know, as a staffer, as a quote unquote staffer, and as a strategist, like, you know, I think this also presents opportunities uh, for the gun safety movement, right? Because this isn't your grandfather's, your grandmother's NRA. And um, that's what's allowed us to organize gun owners across the country, people who felt they've been left behind. So not only does Geffers do the lobbying and the politics, you know, we activate sort of key constituencies in the middle. Um, Gabby has launched and led a 100,000 person coalition of gun owners called Gun Owners for Safety, which I think is primed to grow exponentially in the years ahead. Um, so, you know, I just, I just want to make the point that um, things are getting scary, they're getting extreme, but the vast majority of Americans um, are still interested in the safety of their children, their communities, and common sense. Um, and as long as we, you know, have the confidence to ignore the extreme voices on both the left and the right, um, that we can, you know, do big things, um, as a country and sort of continue to have achievements like the one, um, that we had on a bipartisan basis in Congress last month. So Peter, another question I like to ask my guests is called in the vault. Can you tell me about 
uh, an experience you had, a mistake you made uh, at another point in your career, and what you learned from it and how you recovered. That's that's a great that's a great question. Um, I'd have to go back almost ten years. Twenty thirteen, we had just launched Giffords, um, and we're you know fighting like hell to pass what ultimately become the Mansion Toomey background checks bill. And um, I guess what I probably did was sort of like over indexed on like my staffer experience, right? Like I thought you could get a bill like this done, um, you know, through the sort of nuts and bolts of like lobbying, right? And policy and like all the little things that you sort of learn in a very literal way. Um, when you're coming up in Congress and working in a administration. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated the importance of movement building and infrastructure, right? Um, because, and we ultimately didn't have that in 2013, right? Um, the country had sort of writ large basically given up on this issue, um, you know, after the early 90s. And it wasn't until the tragedy in Newtown that Americans uh, were sort of outraged all over again and our politics started to respond. And I think about the difference between then and now, between 2013 and 2022, uh, you know, like what and the difference that a decade of work in this space sort of made, not just by us, but by so many people, right? And so, you know, 2013, in the aftermath of Newtown, 20 dead children in their classrooms, uh, you know, a tragedy of historic proportions. Um, we spent months and months and months, you know, lobbying and fighting and begging and pleading with Congress to ultimately get four Republican senators on a narrow piece of legislation that would ultimately go on to be filibustered and killed by Ted Cruz and company. 10 years later, you have a similar tragedy, 19 dead children, another historic tragedy of gun violence. Um, and there was a lot of sort of pessimism at first, oh, like more of the same, nothing's gonna be different. But in a matter of weeks, you had 10, then 11, then 15 Republican senators sign on to a similarly narrow but impactful piece of legislation. And on the one month anniversary, of the tragedy at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, President Biden signed this bill into law. Um, so it happened fast and it was bipartisan. And people ask me all the time, like, what's the difference? What's the difference between then and now? And the answer is, you know, in short, we are, right? It's Gabby Giffords and the work that she's put in over a decade. It's the, it's Giffords and the team of 70 or 80 you know, talented staff. And more importantly, it's the ecosystem of advocates and organizations and experts. And it's the tens of millions of Americans who over the course of a decade said enough is enough. And I'm going to start conditioning my vote on this issue. I'm going to start asking candidates and office holders like about it. And that's how we changed the politics and ultimately got something done. You you have you really have done both of those things. The you've gotten something done, and the politics have changed, and they are still changing. 
Peter, you, um, your work is an inspiration. I am so happy as a citizen that uh, you are doing what you are doing, and the, this accomplishment really is so significant. I, I, you know, I've been here for most of that 30 years um, where we couldn't get big things done. Um, I, my last question for you um, has to do with your observation of other staffers. I have this notion that one day maybe I'll raise the money and get the permitting to build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the National Mall. And if I did, um, who would you nominate for inclusion in the Stafford Hall of Fame? Um, I mean, I I have to start with Gabe Zimmerman, obviously. Um, and, you know, I didn't know Gabe. Um, Gabe was Gabby's constituent services director. Um, who was shot and killed in Tucson at the event that Gabby was shot at. Um, but I got to know him posthumously. Uh, and, you know, everything that I learned about him after, you know, he had died, um, about his impact in the office, um, about the way he led his life, um, just you know made me realize um the, the extent like where i had like failed right like as a person and how i could be better um and you know both as a professional and um as a as as a person um in in a lot of ways like um i mean he's just he's just helped me even though i never knew him really i talked to him once or twice but um never really knew him he's helped me become a better person and better at whatever job I might have. Let's let's dedicate this episode uh, to him and to other victims of gun violence. And Peter, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you do and for what you're doing. Um, Godspeed. Thanks so much, Jim. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.